Stephen asked me to wrap up the current season series, which is called Bumper Sticker Theology. Uh, we've been doing this for about four weeks now, and I thought I'd start off today by looking at some, f- some uh, fun stats around bumper stickers and demographics. This comes from the folks at uh, cheapcarinsurance.net, who I do not necessarily endorse, disclaimer, uh, but they already did a survey of more than 2,000 people, so I don't have to. So, okay, go ahead and bring up the first graphic. This first graphic tells us about who has stickers on their bumpers. You can see how, I'm going to move around a little bit, Benita. You can see how the green over here indicates a higher number of bumper stickers per car, whereas the the red and yellow, uh, a lower percentage of cars have bumper stickers. And it's very interesting how it's got this regional aspect to it. The people down here in the south really like to decorate their cars, whereas, you know, the folks over on the west coast like a clean bumper. And we up here in the Midwest really don't like bumper stickers that much. Isn't that crazy? Um, It also says how Uh, women, interestingly enough, are more likely to put bumper stickers on their car than men. That actually surprised me. I thought it would go the other way. But women, almost two to one, will have a bumper sticker or some such on their car, whereas men, it's about 50-50. I'm actually going to touch on that again in just another second after we bring up the second graphic. This second graphic looks a little bit more at the content of those stickers. And they broke it down by the states, and any state where they got at least 20 affirmative responses, they were able to uh, collate them into sort of what is the most uh, uh, common topic of those bumper stickers. Now, California, Minnesota, Illinois are really into their politics. So you're going to see them endorsing candidates or talking about important topics to them. Um, uh, you see Texas and Oregon and such, um, they are really into humorous things. So maybe they're making fun of those political candidates or, you know, some other aspect of having a good time with that sticker, getting other people to laugh. But then you look at us, like up here in Wisconsin and, uh, Detroit, uh, such, you know, they are, um, it's all about the family. And I think the thing here getting back to that men versus women thing, is those stick figure families that people like to put on their cars. I think the women do that a lot more, and I think that's why they get a bump uh, in those sticker numbers. But that's just my own theory, of course. I don't have any evidence to back it up. Aren't graphs and statistics fun? I could do this all day, but I won't. I know. Most of you are waiting for me to move on. So, okay, let's transition to the actual message for today, shall we? Again, this is week four of bumper sticker theology. It's the last crusade, if you will. We've been looking at typical sayings and phrases uh, that often make their way onto our cars and into our lives, but then asking ourselves if those phrases are actually spiritually sound or if they just sound spiritual. On the surface, they seem reasonable or innocuous. Uh, But when we actually consider the deeper meaning, it's easy to see how they can lead to some unexpected conclusions and potentially dangerous ideas about God. The last few weeks, we've covered phrases that you might actually use in your daily life. Uh, You might tell someone experiencing hardship that everything happens for a reason, or God will never give you more than you can handle. You can see that happening. You might honestly tell someone that God helps those who help themselves maybe encouraging them to work harder for the things that they need and want. 
But today's is a little bit different. Today we're looking at a bumper sticker. It makes a little less sense as a spoken phrase, uh, but it looks nice in the context of a car. And that's, God is my co-pilot. You've probably seen this one all over the place. I mean, that's not something you'd really have the opportunity to tell someone, right? Uh, maybe like that moment when you're leaving your in-law's house uh, and they invariably tell you to drive safe. Maybe then. So, so okay. Drive safe. Of course. God is my co-pilot. I don't know. I don't think it really encourages that much confidence. Uh, but putting it on your car makes sense, you know? It's the idea that I'm piloting the plane of my life or I'm driving through the winding roads and God is sitting right next to me and he's advising me. He's giving me direction. He's helping me on my way, telling me what to do, where to go and how to get there. You might just as easily have said, Jesus is my GPS. You can just picture Jesus sitting in the passenger seat. He's shuffling through some maps. And he's saying, okay, take a right just up ahead to avoid that temptation. Then you can get off at the first exit ramp for gas and Cheetos. It doesn't sound that bad, right? It sounds like you're taking your relationship with God seriously. Like you're listening to his instructions. You're following his directions, right? But if you really think about it, that's not a healthy way to view our relationship with God. God, as your co-pilot, might seem like a good thing, especially when you look back on your life and you remember times that he wouldn't have even been allowed in the plane. We can look at our lives and be excited for how far we've come, and that's a good place to be. But we should never stop trying to improve. Never let the good steps that we've taken stop us from the great things that God has for us. So let's turn to scripture for an illustration, and maybe it'll become clearer. There's blue Bibles over here on the seats. You're welcome to use those. If you've brought your own, by all means, if you have the Bible app on your mobile device, we're mobile friendly here, feel free. Otherwise, the words will be on the screen for you to follow along, any of those, so you can verify that I'm not lying about what's written down in the Bible. Okay, we're going to Matthew 19. And we're starting in verse 16. And while you're turning there, I'll kind of set the stage. Uh, Jesus has just been to the mountain with a few of his friends. And they watched him being transfigured and communing with Moses and Elijah. Then they went down to Galilee and then on to Capernaum, where a bunch of people are coming and questioning him about pretty much everything from divorce to taxes. Now, in verse 16, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Most of us have been there, right? You want to make sure you're following the rules, that you're on the right path, uh, so you double-check the directions. And Jesus' response is really not that surprising. It's textbook, you might say. If you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. In other words, you already know the answer because you've had it since Moses. It's basically the entire basis of your entire civilization. But then the man responds, which ones? Which ones? I mean, it kind of sounds like he's saying, I know that God gave Moses 10, but do we really have to follow all of them? It's a little weird, right? Uh, if this were a Mel Brooks movie, 
This is the point where the Jesus character would have responded with something in the vein of, well, just between you and me, really only about half are important. And that thing about parents was just to get the conservative vote. (laughs) Well, Jesus isn't particularly phased by it. He keeps his cool and he starts listing them off. But the man keeps pushing. All these I have kept, young man says. What still do I lack? So Jesus takes it up a notch and he says, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions and give that money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. See, Jesus knew this guy, just like he always does. And he knew what was in his heart. He told him, look, you've hit that milestone, and that's good. So now... If you want to take it to the next level and really seek heavenly treasure, you've got to learn generosity. And as is so often the case, this was just a little too far. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I don't know if this guy wore fancy clothes or maybe showed up on a horse uh, with an entourage or something along those lines. But Matthew said everyone could tell he was wealthy. He had status. And Jesus could tell that giving up that wealth was the key to unlocking his heart. He could tell that the man's loyalty was to his money and to his status. And that heaven was just an afterthought, an insurance policy, if you will. Now, this, this little, next little bit is, a, is typical of biblical teaching. We often see that God's not interested so much in how we behave. He's far more interested in why we behave the way we do, what's in our hearts. We see it when Jesus scolds the Pharisees for tithing from their herb gardens, but not caring about their neighbors. We see it when a humble prayer in private by a sinner is praised higher than a loud and boisterous speech given to seek personal gain. God doesn't just want us to do good. He wants us to change the way he wants to change the way that we think and let our actions be a reflection of that change. It's why you can never do enough good to buy your way into heaven. And it is the critical distinction between Christianity and the other Abrahamic religions. But I want to take a little bunny trail here and bear with me because I think it's relevant. Did you notice how the man seemed like he was pushing for more? In the second half of verse 20, he said, what else must I do? Or what do I still lack? Why would he ask that? Jesus had told him, keep the commandments. And then verified it was just the 10 Mosaic commandments he was talking about. Just keep those commandments. The man could have said, great, I'm all set then. Thanks, Jesus. You know, thumbs up. Walked away. He could have gone on to enjoy the rest of his life, secure in the knowledge that he was doing everything Jesus had told him to do. But he didn't, did he? There was something inside him, and it was nagging him. Some part of him knew that there had to be more. You ever feel that way? You're following all the rules, you're checking all the boxes, but you know there's still something missing. 
You're looking for the next step, a little more satisfaction, a little more joy, perhaps. That's what this was. The man must have heard about Jesus and known that his wealth and status were not bringing him the joy, the life that he was hoping for. So he went to find out what he should do about it. And when he heard the truth, he was heartbroken because it confirmed what he had known all along. Jesus basically told him, you have to let go of that steering wheel. Because here's the truth. If God is your co-pilot, you need to switch seats. You've done good. You've built a good life for yourself. But you can't let that good life get in the way of the better life that I have for you. You need to put me in control. If God is just an advisor, a navigator, a tag-along, it's time for you to cede the control of your life and switch seats. He should be the pilot. In a word, surrender. So let me stop here and ask you, what is it you're holding on to in your life? that you need to surrender. Where are you pushing God into the co-pilot seat and insisting on handling it yourself? What's the good thing, or maybe the not-so-good thing, but the familiar thing that's getting in the way of the great thing that God has planned for you? Is it the same thing this guy struggled with? Do you have a hard time letting go of your money or your status? I'm not talking about being like intentionally wasteful here, and I'm not saying money is bad. Money is just a tool. And you're welcome to use your money the best way you know how. But when you start to hold on to money as your source of security, when money becomes a status symbol, and when you make the majority of your decisions based on how to get more of it or keep more of it, then money has stopped being a tool and turned into something you're worshiping instead. You've promoted money to the status of an idol. We talk a lot about money here at MC because our society has been idolizing money for a long time. Americans love to keep track of who has the most money. You know, we tell our kids that the best jobs are the ones that pay the most. Even if the people in those jobs statistically have the worst work-life balance and the lowest life expectancies. We have to have the big house, the new SUV, and the fanciest vacations. Because that's the American dream. But money isn't meant to sit still. It's meant to move from person to person. And if you make enough to consistently meet your own needs, the needs of your family, it's time to start looking at how the money you make can help the people around you, can start to help others. How you can improve the lives of people around you instead of worrying about what might happen to you in the next 50 years. But maybe money isn't what you're holding on to. Maybe you have a difficult life and you want an escape. 
or maybe you work hard and you feel like you deserve a reward. So you chase after fun, food, entertainment, maybe something a little stronger like the perfect high or the biggest thrill. Maybe it's closer in, like perfectionism. You can't let go of your own flaws or let any of your mistakes show. Maybe it's your job. You need to be in control of your career. Climb that ladder. Get that promotion and prove to everyone that you are important. What do you need to surrender? How have you been clutching that steering wheel and refusing to give God control in your own life? Because the truth of it is that God has never been content to sit in the passenger seat of our lives. He made that really clear. I want to look at one more passage, and this time it's in Mark 8. Because if you think God wants to just be the co-pilot of your life, this ought to drive the point home that surrender is the only way to go. Starting in 34. If any of you, this is Jesus speaking, wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. I mean, that's not a wishy-washy kind of statement. He's clearly talking life and death here. Being a follower of Jesus, according to his own words, is a serious matter. You have to give up your own way. That means you can't just keep doing what you've been doing all along and expect things to change. You have to change. You have to let him change you. You have to let him be in control. It stops being about what I need what I think is best for me. And it has to change to what God says is best. If we want to take hold of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, first we have to let go of our kingdom, the kingdom of me. And in case that wasn't strong enough verbiage, he tells you to take up your cross But think about who is saying this, who he is saying it to, the time frame he's saying this in. We're talking about people who live under Roman rule. And crucifixion was nothing to joke about. It was basically the most terrifying thing you could imagine at the time. It was a symbol of death and pain. They had to make a new word just to define what crucifixion was like. And that's where we get the word excruciating, excruciating. The roots are the same. There was no cross jewelry back then. No one was getting cross tattoos or wearing stylized cross t-shirts. Like the cross, saying take up your cross was on par with saying, get ready to inhale some mustard gas or plan on being skinned alive. Not a pleasant picture. In other words, don't expect this to be easy. You have to go all in. If you're not ready 
to die a painful death, you're not going to make it. Because sometimes the life of a Christ follower is painful. There are some of us who have died by the hands of others for our beliefs. And there are more of us who will before the end of it all. But even if you don't die a martyr for your beliefs, you will experience some form of pain and hardship in your life, which is where it starts to be more universally applicable. If you can't see the good in God's plan for your life, if you can't fix your eyes on Jesus and his kingdom and see how it's better than the earthly alternatives, then when that hardship hits, you're likely to give up. Like the rich man from that first passage, when you realize that you have to give up control, give up the wealth, the status, the career, the perfectionism, in order to keep following Jesus, you'll turn away and leave with your head hanging down. It's hard. You're in a society where you're taught to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that hard work and diligence will get you everything. But I'm telling you to let go of the steering wheel and follow a course set by someone else. And that means when it really comes down to it, you have to trust that plan. You have to trust that God knows what he's doing better than you would. And that's the really hard part. Because we're not a society that knows how to trust others. In fact, I think a lot of us have been raised believing, consciously or subconsciously, that God is actively trying to keep us from the good things in life. That he's up there watching us have fun down here, trying to get us to give it all up so that we can be as slaves or something. I mean, that's the popular view of heaven right now, isn't it? He's sitting on the throne, and we're all bowing down. And yeah, there's, there's golden streets and mansions and stuff, but it's like you can't have any parties or do anything fun because we have worship duty this millennium. It's all so jumbled up and confusing that we don't even know why anyone would want to follow him to begin with. But that's what this series is all about. We've got to step back and let go of the folk tales, the cliches, the pithy sayings, and start to look at what God is really all about. Because when God invites us to generosity, it's not because he wants our money or wants us to go without. He knows that a life with open hands, open hands, is freeing. He knows that using our wealth, however limited it may be, to help others brings far more joy than spending it on more junk to store in our oversized houses. And it's a simpler and happier way to live. When God invites us to bear each other's burdens, it's not because he wants Christians to do all the work while everyone else gets off easy. No. It's because he knows that there will be times when the helper needs help. 
when we all help each other, we all benefit. He knows that a life in community is better than a life in isolation. And when God invites us to put him first in our life, above all else, it's not because he's needy or lonely or narcissistic. He doesn't have some sort of complex. He doesn't use worship as his food source, so he's farming believers to sustain him. It's because he knows that when we put the weight and expectation of God onto anything other than God, that thing will eventually crumble beneath the weight. He knows that putting him first and surrendering completely to him is the only way to let him bear our burdens and give us the freedom to live a full and joyful life. It's easier said than done. But it's all about surrender. We start by seeing everything we have as a gift from God. Every talent, every skill, every resource. They're all from him. And then we give God control to take the things he's made in us and for us and use them the way he intended. After all, who would know better how to use those resources than the one who gave them to us in the first place? Now, one quick warning. This isn't me telling you to let go and let God. That's another bumper sticker cliche that unfortunately we don't have time to go into today. The point isn't to sit back and wait for everything to fall into place around you. The point is to work with God, to follow him, to join him in the work of helping others find their way back to him. But we have to get out of the driver's seat. So what have you been holding on to? What do you need to surrender to God today? Or surrender again? As I close us in prayer, I invite you to close your eyes, picture that thing in your mind, the thing that you need to surrender. Then envision letting it go and handing it over to Jesus. Envision him taking that weight out of your hands smiling, and then reminding you that he knows you and he's in control. And then find peace in knowing that he will be able to do more with that weight for your good than you would have by yourself.